Hello and welcome to episode four of season two of AngelCast with me, Adam Cunis. Me, Alex Lay. And me, Donald Taylor. Um, nice to have you here, Donald. Um, this week in Match Play, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about a book called Ogre More Tribes. And continuing on from our last episode, I am going to be talking about uh, the Dramatis Personae for my Inquisitor Warband for our upcoming Inquisitor campaign. And in Open, we're going to be discussing airbrushing and general hobby updates. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you guys about all of that. We're going to have a quick break and we'll be back with Match Play. Welcome back. Um, as we said, in Match Play today, we're going to be talking about the Ogre Moor Tribes, um, which if you've been listening this season, you'll know is my current army or the one that I'm building. Um, but most of the times that I've played against Ogre Moor Tribes, they've been uh, piloted, captained, um, loon bossed by someone else. Crop <laughs> um, terrorised? Yeah, consistently. Donal, you're sort of the OG destruction player in the Angel group. Let's go right back. And I know you've talked about Ogres a fair amount on other platforms, various times with Rob, and obviously have been on stream with various destruction armies. How did you feel? And obviously this is going back pre-pandemic, so you may have to really rack your brains here. When the current Ogre More Tribes book launched versus how Ogres fit into destruction prior to that. So in the idea that they combined Beast Claw back to Gutbusters. I thought that was great because that ultimately needed to happen and was the direction AOS was going. Pre-book release, I when they do loads of teasers, I'm so annoyed and disappointed because I thought the War Scrolls looked terrible and, and just didn't feel like they'd really been properly updated. Mm -hmm. A lot of overhang from AOS 1, not necessarily refresh of, of real thing. And then when the book finally dropped, um, it took probably a week or two, but I, like, there's a lot of value in it that's a lot more subtle than other tomes. So definitely having had it for like a longer period, I think it's it's a fantastic battle tome. Where, where does that value lie? I don't know if, it, if you're a little bit like me, I've played against Ogres probably only in AOS 1, truth be told, because I feel like since AOS 2, you're the only person I know who had an Ogre's army, went to a team event together, so you and I didn't implicitly play. So where is that value in that book for someone who might be new to it? So I think there's a lot of value when it comes to the Maw Tribes or the sub-faction. Initially looking at the book, you kind of look and Stonehorns are by far the strongest war scroll. And it's very easy to do the Stonehorn lists. And they were the first ones that we saw. And that's always been the case. They completely changed how Thunder Tusks work. So it was no longer the, the mixed destruction Thunder Tusks tusk rules and it was very much stonehorn was seen as the strongest um, option and certainly the direction i initially went in but the more tribes open up so much opportunity in terms of how the army interacts and plays um and out of the six that they have i'd say probably four of them are really usable and they all skew how you build your army which is what they're supposed to do and i think that's something that sometimes doesn't get used as much as you know, and we've seen many tomes over the last like two years where one sub faction really dominates. Yeah, and that's that's certainly why I like the book compared to even compared to Cities of Sigma. And I think Cities has maybe a three city strike rate out of the eight that are in there. The Ogres seems like you get value for most of the units in the tome in 
an iteration of it. Whereas, you know, looking at the Caradron Overlords example, it's been different Skyports that have been good at different times, but it's generally only been one. And like similarly with the Daughters of Cain, it's this one that's good. And then sometimes one comes into the meta and you go, okay, this one is currently good, but actually your list building options. Yeah, absolutely. But your list building (laughs) options within that framework are generally quite limited within a book itself. And it's down to um, whether it's the GHB changes or an FAQ or what's happening in other places in the meta that would dictate actually even the models that you buy whereas i think um what i've liked about the ogre's book admittedly i've bought it for myself in order to have a very straightforward smashy monster heavy list uh because that's the kind of game i want to play when we get back to playing in person but let's reading just take the- um can we just have a moment of silence for Aldrich conus i think they've had enough moments of silence at this point to be honest oh, no, um, well, no you're right that, that hasn't <laughs> been enough silence for me about them but that's fine I mean, we didn't do a podcast for 18 months and they disappeared. <laughs> within that. And I, I've not mentioned it, but everyone else seems to kindly keep bringing it up. I'm really intrigued by Iron Guts. I think the Tyrant's quite cool. And yeah, I don't own any of those models and I'm not running them, which with Cities, I was very much like, I would probably take these units more or less in any, like the Hurricaneum, I would be taking regardless of which city it was from the Cities book. Yeah. Strength in War Scroll. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's still an argument that maybe a Frost Order on Stonehorn is an auto-include in every list. Okay. Um, because of the value it brings, it's very hard to not have that um, because it provides a beat stick that's maneuverable. But I think the army is so much bigger than, than just that. And you could certainly get away with not having it. Mm. Um, but, but even... So that's arguably the one weakness is is that is the one very very strong um war scroll that gets included i think one of the things for me that made it a more interesting book was within that period of its release to now the removal of the layer of the malign sorcery artifacts from the meta game because i remember when we were playtesting possibly for brotherhood um at the beginning of 2019 uh 2020 was that right uh, yeah, the time is was, meaningless. It was, yeah. it was some time ago. The book was relatively fresh, right? And um, ethereal stonehorn slash flying magic fire cape stonehorn. Those were frightening, and there wasn't a lot you could do to stop the movement uh, or the survivability. Whereas without those, you start looking at the artifacts and traits or the mount traits within the book itself um, in more detail. And um, I don't know, it just makes the design space for me a bit more interesting. Although there's still probably one or two hot picks, which we might talk about now. um, The Ethereal Stonehall was just ubiquitous, wasn't it? You know, you you knew that if you were facing more tribes, you would come up against that. Yeah. And with the the five up DR, DPR role that they have, um, having that armor protection was just so useful. Uh, that said, there's enough value within the tome that it's aged well and better than some other tomes in terms of when they lost the malign portents. Because I think in in more tribes, if you take a, a sub-faction, you have to take a the the artifacts and those are generally good um mm-hmm. well some are good some are not 
uh, but certainly the ones if you're taking a Frostlord um, in the in the two Frostlord heavy tribes um, are decent, and um, there's some good ones out of the normal artifacts in the book. So I think there's there's value there. I I have a question uh, more because I've, I've observed a comment from George, which is actually live on this podcast, which was more tribes has a, a very richly written. Uh, magic law, um, which it's my understanding you're not seeing on the table, so that it, it, it's facilitated by your butchers and your your, your big what's it, a cauldron or whatever. Slaughter is it? Yeah, slaughter master. Thank you. And um, is that is that dare I say because of magic dominance in other factions, it's just not it's not viable, or is it is there something implicitly wrong with it compared to other choices in the book? I think it comes down to sort of two things. One is is what is your army trying to do, um, and two, do your support characters actually keep up with your army? So the there's limited magical buffs for the maw tribes. One of them is that you that the maw pot gives you plus one to dispel and cast, which in the in the era of many pluses is quite negative. Things might change in AOS 3, who knows? Um, but but certainly, you know, you're you're relatively restricted there. The other angle is your buff spells, which are really good, are relatively short range. And it, your, it means your wizards are going to have to try to keep up with this fast-moving army that's going forward. And even within ogres you don't necessarily want your wizards going into combat um so i think it actually they have a really interesting lore um but you their spells aren't reliable um i still run a slaughtermaster and i always will because of the cauldron buff um so i don't necessarily i don't necessarily think that they're not useful but i i certainly would say that they don't necessarily have the same value as other armies um, and fire bellies are, for instance, their spell lore is just quite high casting and unreliable from that perspective. So it's definitely a weakness for me. It's a weakness of the tome is is the um, is the spell lore casting value if you compare the um, Maw Tribe stuff with with other like the Luminous spell lures. It could be quite depressing. Well, I mean, it doesn't really matter what the cast value of your spells are if you've got a single infantry okay. wizard against Luminous. Because you're only gonna Agreed. like you've you've yeah. got you've got one chance. You get off a buff. Who cares? There's 15 spells coming back your way. There's auto unbinds or as good as auto unbinds happening. Like it just becomes. Uh, it's not even bringing a knife to a gunfight, is it? It's just like literally you're at home and you've been killed with nuclear war. Oh, it's even worse if you've got a, a flying fox that flies over and just switches your cauldron off. But I, I, I don't know how that. Works. In practice, whether they just tip it over or put the fire out underneath or put a wet tea towel over it, I don't know. It, was it just, it just, doing, it just fills the pot with vegetables, and the ogres <laughs> turn their nose up at it and march away. I feel like they were just—it is just kicking it over, <laughs> just going, "Oh, the fire's <laughs> out. What are you gonna do? Don't yeah. have time mid-battle to to rekindle oh. the flame." No, Dude, especially, this is like a, this is this is a, this is a slow cook, man. That's a big yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially and when you're no wreathed, and you're wreathed in ice as well. 
Yeah, yeah, there's still fire bellies in the army. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Which is a shame. I think I, I do. I, I guess it was a bit of a leading question because I was trying to tease out the the landlord's complaint. But I just I just think it's it's sad when books that are actually quite well written and internally balanced suddenly have components in that just aren't viewed as as useful anymore because something comes out that just it becomes so dangerous to it you almost just don't want to be at a tournament having taken it and, and not being able to get a game from it you see what i mean i don't know yeah from from an outside perspective well no longer outside i'm starting a destruction army but it does seem to be one of the things that mostly affects destruction right you've got fewer war scrolls in the ogre's book and that's having combined two factions you look at Oruk war clans that's two factions combined to make one tome you know like you are going to every, every unit that isn't useful within a book is a larger percentage of what's available to you if there's a couple of units in cities of sigma that's not useful who gives a shit frankly you've there's got, like, more than a couple you just don't like, talk about them you've, you've, <laughs> don't you've, got, you've got about 15 options of blokes on 25 mil bases with two-handed weapons so you know it's 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 crazy so i, I find it disappointing that the fire belly isn't good and that you don't see it. I find it disappointing that the Thunder Tusks aren't competitive with the Stonehorn, although the meta seems to be shifting in a direction that that is now old news. And um, Mick has been doing some pretty cool things on TTS with uh, Thunder Tusks, which has been great because I've been in the Ogre's WhatsApp group for like four months. And four months ago, I was like, oh, Thunder Tusks are cool. Should I get one? And everyone was like, do not get a thunder tusk and i was like okay i will not get a thunder tusk and everyone's like what you really need is seven thunder tusks <laughs> i'm like <laughs> we haven't had an faq or any points changes the only difference is that thunder tusks shit all over lumineth and seraphon and it's funny <laughs> um but but that actually kind of makes sense right and that's yeah. why the book has so much depth is it it apparently can hold up and shift according to the meta, right? And that's what you want in a tome. So obviously, more tribes do the combat well, um, and apparently they do mortal wound output really well. Um, they they don't do. necessarily they they can do. They don't necessarily do shooting that well. I know there's the um, underguts tribe that allows you to to really lean into that, but it's it, it falls behind something like KO. I, th I feel like the um, the Iron Blasters are is that the is that the name of the infantry ones? Uh, lead belchers and, and Iron Blasters and cannons. Can. The, there's just the the four plus nature of things, and obviously there've been improvements, and some stuff's three plus now and whatever. But like you don't have that many shots, you don't have that many models, and yeah, you score more because you're an ogre. But like you have a reduced number of things that have the potential to do more damage. So I think it's the shooting clearly works and you will be able to like leverage that into doing really well in certain matchups, but it is certainly much less reliable than shooting that's available to other factions just by weight of shots. Surely. Um, I know the um, lead belters are able to roll up towards that. Um, but again, it's a, it's destruction. So it's a randomized number of attacks and, and all of that sort of thing. You hit the nail on it. Yeah. I the words out of my mouth. I was waiting patiently to jump in there, but it's, um, the frustration I had with the first KO book was precisely that four plus to hit random number of damage. Yeah. And now that you now that there's been um, a consistency with I things are easy to hit and damage tends to be less swingy. 
it, it it's suddenly become a, albeit with negative player experience, a bit more of a balanced book. I think sadly, you know, when I think about my orcs and goblins army that I had when I was 10, mm. I bought that because it was really, really random and implicitly GW's also tried to push the narrative and lore around destruction as it being a bit random, but random's not what you want in a competitive game, right? You, you, you want um, some element of predictability or at least reliability. You want parameters, right? You want yes. parameters for the randomness. Yeah. yeah. So and I guess the point I'm trying to make is it just it doesn't feel like shooting is going to be a thing that sits comfortably within that parameter. I don't know. So, so this is where the mall tribes are really good. I think where Ogre's struggle is to do something like do shooting half um, baked, whereas if they really lean into it with the the underguts and the three or four iron blasters and mass lead belchers you you get a lot of benefits so the lead belchers go from 12 inch range to 18 in underguts um you can get two shots on your cannons so suddenly three iron iron blasters which are expensive if you're haven't upgraded them can suddenly be um shooting a lot more reliably or like Mm. a lot more shots right um and that's where you you're effectively doing what you said alex of, of trying to reduce the randomness and you reduce it by volume um but if you're trying to just throw in one iron blaster into a mixed arms list i think it's it's a waste of points um yeah. and it doesn't make sense but mm-hmm. but actually like i think there's still value in 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 looking at a holistic shooting army i think it's something that mm-hmm. you can get away with and because then you're still ogres and the lead belchers are great in combat it's actually not horrendous mm. and they're still counting as uh, uh, how many models per base? Well, two per two per base, and then you um, say two two to two or four models in the unit, so it's four or eight, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay. But you could actually have some really interesting MSU lists with um, lead belchers, and I, I I value lead belchers a lot. I think they're eighty I think they're points really for yeah. And their their battle line at two models with shooting, they count as two models each. Like there are very few uh, five man single wound units in the game that are battle line that you might have as an objective holder or something that will stand up to being charged by whether it's um, your um, oh I don't know what they're called anymore actually the gluttons yeah they used to be ogre bulls or they're not going to stand up to two um, lead belchers. Like just the number of wounds you get for the points, the ability to shoot, the extra movement from the allegiance ability if they're not in combat. Like the I, fact, I, they hit on threes, threes yeah. as well. It's they're strong and they're they're going to they're always going to be a good pick. And I, what I quite like about the Ogus book is you can obviously currently lean very heavily into going right. It's two or three drop. Everything's in this battalion. I'm going to do that. Or as Donald says, you can go more MSU and be like, right, this is basically chaff, but your chaff won't kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm going to throw this at the objective. If I kill one of your guys, we're tied on the objective. I'm probably going to kill two. And for the same damage, you're not even going to half, well, you're going to half kill one ogre. Um, and I'm not going to battle shock and you will. So you, you win that attrition across the board time and time again. And I think as much as I'd like to see Noblars playing a bit more of a role, um, 
I would struggle in terms of my own list building to look past, um, if I wasn't doing Beast Claw Raiders, I'd struggle to look past kind of units of two ogres all over the place. Um, the places the novelers are quite good is um, if you have a tyrant, then then for screening and, and mm -hmm. well, actually it's, it's relevant for the tyrant, but, but ultimately screening is super useful. And, and that's where yeah. ogres traditionally struggle and where novelers come in. So I know Mick used to always run at least one unit of 20. And they're cheap as well, so you can do it. And I, I, I remember talking to George about Nobblers before, actually before the More Drugs book came out and he was running Mick's Destruction. And one of the things he did um, during the Malign Sorcery years was to put in like 20 or 40 Nobblers so that he could just either leave them at home on the home objective very cheaply just for bodies, or if you were coming up, you know, at the time, Alex, you mentioned it before, something like Draconis, you just go, cool, I'm going to zigzag across the front of this deployment. You can have turn one, mate. You can you can blow your 600 points worth of dragons into these grots that I'm not interested in keeping alive. Have a great time. Um, <laughs> and it was effective. So, so I think both screening, but also um, allowing you to give away the turn so that you get the double when you want it. Um, so you could screen from alphas sort of who I drop you or um, push them up the board and continue to sort of stay safe. And it means if you can give away a double turn potentially or just give away the um, the next turn so that you're, maxima you're not getting doubled later. So I think both of those are hugely valuable. Mm. Um, and because it's your, ultimately your screen anyway, you can always run behind if you need to. Yeah. Um, one of the books that it reminds me of is actually the Gitz book, which of course you're famed for, just in terms of its architecture and the fact that you can pick things from throughout the tome and have an interesting list. Now, the difference for me, and you might disagree with me, but the difference for me between this, Ogre More Tribes, and the Gitz is that survivability through the meta. So I've really enjoyed different Gitz lists I've played against, but with the reduction of the number of endless spells that you can take, um, with the kind of non-addressing of points and so on, I just haven't really seen them ever do in tournaments quite what I would have hoped them to do, apart from when you've been in charge of them, to be fair. Um, or, or to be fair, Richie. Um, but I, I think it suffer from the lack, or suffered from a lack of um, tribes and sub-factions. Okay. Has that been readdressed um, at all by the um, White Dwarf stuff for the troggets and the spiders and the the um squigs um oh yeah sure partially uh but i th i think it comes down to the allegiance ability is super random um yeah so you're okay. kind of starting yeah and uh, the moon's great if they if it was just reliable and you need to turn to it, it was going to do xyz you can plan around it but the fact that it can just move off the board and realistically you can't yeah. Um, assume it's going to work um, means that you're basically playing with a non-allegiance ability faction um, and so I think that's a real problem yeah because you, um, you have to play as if it's not going to happen because if your plan's based on it and it goes wrong <laughs> it's going to be yeah. quite hard to come back from uh, and, so and as, you, as you said like they were quite heavy like wizards and, and characters um they're ultimately just still madly overpointed in, in some things, but I don't necessarily want the grots to get cheaper. I don't want it to fit more stuff in a 2K gets list. No. 
because it's already slow enough to play. I just want it to do better. Yeah. For me, the reason I brought that book up is that it's, for me, that's like the baseline for an Age of Sigmar battle tome. There's a bit of fiddling about with it that needed to happen, and I think that those White Dwarf Allegiance variants should should have and could have been included in the original publication. Fine, they weren't. But where it is, like, there's a complexity of, like, potential list build. There's a variation of War Scrolls available to you. It does stuff in all the phases, um, and it's super great. What I don't want is for all of that value-wise to go through the floor and suddenly you've got 400 gets on the table, 200 gets on the table instead of 100, um, because I think it's everything else that is massively underpointed. You're looking at, um, and we discussed this previously, but Techlist, for example, who's like 200 points cheaper than Nagash and just <laughs> is a significantly better war scroll before you even think about the level of synergy he's got compared to... Uh, Nagash in Legions, obviously that's now an older book, but um, you kind of go, right, the, this, the creep is in the wrong direction. I think actually everything should be reset to around Gits and Ogres. Somewhere between Gits and Ogres would be a really sweet spot for most armies, I would think. I think there's a big disparity between the way the Ogres performance and the way they play versus Gits. So I think I would move everything to Ogres and, and Gits honestly is, is slow enough as it is. I think in theory they'll get faster because I don't think you'll see the debuffing um, lists as much because it's just not possible to play. Plus it's boring and yeah. um, uh, depressing. But but actually like Trogoth heavy lists, Squig heavy lists are all interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I think we could probably talk all evening about destruction and how much we would like it to be resurgent and that maybe a third edition is going to give a lot of options for that. However, I do want to talk on, uh, about other things this evening and I'm really excited in particular from Donald to hear about hobby stuff. But we're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the shadowy world of Inquisitor. Welcome back to the narrative section. We're continuing our conversations about the battle for the Emperor's Soul, the game of Inquisitor, brand new game, 20 years old this year. <laughs> um, we've talked quite a lot in the past, uh, particularly with George as well, about our TTS escapades. And last week I introduced you to two of my player characters. Um, so this week we're going to talk to Alex about his Inquisitor and retinue. So Alex, who are you playing and who are they? Um, so I have a warband of three because I think that was the brief anyway that we were given to come up with three characters each from a, gui a, a guideline, but yes. a, a guideline, yeah. Um, and I have gone for an inquisitor because I just wanted to. And anyone who has spent any time playing with me in narrative games, which you both have, be they D and D or GW based ones, um, I do like to weave in a little bit of pop culture. Where I can or wider pop culture I just find that entertaining like anyone who's seen my um Cyber Masters have painted recently the Dalmatians and one of my Orlocks has got the Corella de Ville haircut um <laughs> so and I, I just like to do little details like that because it amuses me so the reason I bring that up is because my Inquisitor is a Ordo Malleus Inquisitor by the name of Inquisitor Romero Vey and I'm going to read out the little character description I did for him first, and then I'll talk to you about how I've built the model and 
uh, the various sort of pop culture bits are weaved into his name and etc. All right. It has been little over two score years since a young warrior acolyte of the Ordo Malleus crawled out from the mouth of the mines of Agrin Parfilius. Slipped in the viscera of demon flesh and clutching a combat shotgun formerly belonging to a local palanite, Inquisitor Romero Vey graduated from the ranks of acolyte that day. His account was documented and witnessed by the approved magister. The relevant purity seals were prepared in recognition. The paperwork was decorated with the necessary clearance stamps all biometric records were updated accordingly and advanced bionics issued as per the entitlement of said clearance stamps. And that was it. One man's journey into the belly of hell processed and archived with the stroke of the administratum quill. But that's just it. It wasn't archived. Not really. His accounts were warped, twisted and reinterpreted. Words placed into his mouth and his explanations dismissed with imperial approved truth. They knew he had crossed the lines between our worlds. He had seen the home of the enemy, and he had emerged. If he could pass between these realities, by whatever conditions had been in play on Agrin Parfilius that day, then others could do the same. This could be weaponized, and if the Imperium was to truly flourish, to actually make progress in this war, then, by all accounts, it had to be. The fight had to be taken to the enemy on humanity's terms. They now seeks to recreate those conditions, to harness the manifestation of chaos and fight fire with fire. Whatever the cost, those who have served him have spoken of tireless and uncompromising investigation, thorough, albeit not always transparent in its purpose. However, if things do come to blows and combat ensues, they is a frenzied and swirling maelstrom, a storm that must extinguish itself on its own terms. Sorry, that was quite long. No, it's cool. I'm getting uh, AC12 vibes. There's some corruption going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, so he is, um, so we've spoken a little bit about the game and the kind of two factions that Inquisitor sits in, and he is uh, a, a radical um, by all accounts. Um, albeit rather un unwillingly, I feel that they, when I was creating the character, sees himself as quite straight-laced because, uh, pop culture reference number one, the model I have built and painted, which I've subsequently rebuilt, reconverted, and, and I've uh, made bigger because of, because of scale creep, because he looks a bit tiny, yeah. um, is based on the Doom Marine. Oh, okay. uh, so, uh, as in the classic video game, Doom. So he wears a full face helmet, not necessarily like um, Lorian style. He does take it off, but it's it's one of the um, mining helmets that you see Gene Steeler cultists wearing, or not Gene Steeler cultists because they're not necessarily cultists at that point; they are just miners. Um, and he is just a uh, a sledgehammer. Runs around with a combat shotgun and a chainsaw because I just wanted to create everything about the the, the cool character from the video game running really quickly, berserking, and, and you know, just going a bit nuts. But it, intellectually, um, he's realised that he passed between the, 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 the normal world and he thinks he was in the realm of chaos and actually fighting demons on their own terms. And he can't see why, if we want to get an advantage in this war, why we wouldn't try and recreate that and invade them before they get us. That's his mm. opinion. 
which is relatively radical considering that the average imperial citizen isn't even supposed to know of the existence of the ruinous powers so running around shouting about it is uh, going to ruffle some feathers even if you're righteous about it sure um, and he was only an acolyte when this happened and it's the, the point is that they were mining and did they dig deep too deep did they not necessarily dig too deep to push them and about actual hell but you know um so, something happened to create a portal effectively and he passed between those realities or to all a terrible manipulative vision and it's actually there's no truth to it whatsoever and that's why when he was telling his account the magistrates were all a bit like do you mean to say this I think you meant to say this. We're going to write that down. Don't worry about it. So, so in terms of Inquisitor Vey, um, is it the same Inquisitor in your headcanon that was present for our first uh, Necromunda campaign, or is it a sort of a multiverse version? No, it's the same guy. The same um, guy. So actually, I, and that, that will segue on to segue me on to the to the next character that I wanted to that I ended up settling on, which after creating I think seven different characters for this campaign, I ended up just using two that I'd already come up with because I wanted to carry on this story. Yeah. Um, yeah, Romero Bay was sent to the planet of Necromunda uh, to investigate a uh, demonic or, or suspected demonic outbreak, which initially looked like a outbreak of brain leaf. Um, however, by all accounts, there was a lot of concern that that wasn't actually what was going on. So he was sent to go and have a look. And obviously, was the hospitality he received from Helmwall was uh, off the charts, because obviously Inquisitors do have carte blanche to order exterminators if they think, think things aren't going well. But instead, he... Uh, they do uh, in theory, but considering that the Imperial Fists have a fortress monastery and all... Yeah, he would have got away with it. So I don't think it, it would have actually... <laughs> <laughs> there's also no. a sister, the Sisters of Battle Cathedral in New Necromunda as well, um, and the Vansar make most of the uh, the weapon STCs for the Astra Militarum. Yeah, so, so it was ne it was never really an option, <laughs> which is why you send which is why you send the guy who kind of wants to study it and is more inclined to want to go around and punch it in the face rather than just go no, no that's it delete it done. Unlike Herman Lars, I suppose. So, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which I guess brings me on to my next character, unless you wanted to dwell on Romero Vey. The only thing I would point out is uh, Romero Vey comes from, uh, Vey is the Latin for doom, and Romero uh, is actually the surname of the original developer of the Doom video game, which is where I got those. Oh, uh, that's cool. Tasted at least for cool. you. Yeah, I know. I, I, I spent probably more time fussing about that than I did worrying about the rules. <laughs> So, my next dramatis personae, as it were, is um, a, an entity which actually was uh, the said, uh, what's the word looking for, villain of our first Necromander campaign uh, and was the demon at the centre of this mysterious brain leaf outbreak. Um, and it is a demon that calls itself Brendak Parian Caller. Demon host in servitude to Inquisitor Romero Vey. Brendak Carrion Caller was banished back to the warp by his now master during the cleanse of the catacombs of High Primus, Necromunda. However, Brendak was not summoned and Vey is not a willing master. Brendak, content on his reconnection to the warp following his showdown with the Inquisitor, 
suddenly found himself shackled to the corpse of a hapless janitor acolyte. No sign of ritual and no mark of bonding to be seen, yet no means of escape, and undeniably he finds himself bound to the will of his former adversary. A trickster demon by nature, Brandak thrives on the discourse of psychic illusion and puppetry of the will, including that of the dead. So, so no one's doing a demon host. Yeah, I was going to say, Donald, for your reference, you may not remember, but de demon host is, uh characters in 40k originated in Inquisitor um, and um, led to the development of the character Sherubale in uh, the Eisenhorn trilogy. Um, so yeah, demon hosts are kind of like not okay to have as a possession as an inquisitor at all. You, you should not have demons imprisoned in the flesh of people. <laughs> does they does they know this? Yeah, so they is very so yes, but he doesn't know why. Vey's entire thing is he believes that physical manifestations of chaos are they, they perceivably if you're a bit if you're you know like a redemptionist you believe it's a demon creating something ex nihilo so it's just like corruption or you know if you think about Zietzschean sort of corruption it just comes from nothing and Vey doesn't believe that he believes there's actually metaphysical reasons and that and it's those reasons that are create that connection between our reality and, and the enemy's reality. And so what he was doing when Brendak was slain was um, taking physical samples via an acolyte that was with him at the time. And he was just asking this acolyte to start conducting some experiments to see if we could start um, isolating genetic material that you could perceivably say is demonic genetic material. That's kind of what he's trying to understand. Um, and in the process of that acolyte doing that, and he doesn't know why, the, the acolyte became possessed by the demon. And what they don't, and what he also doesn't, what the demon doesn't understand upon conversing with it, the demon doesn't understand how it got there either, because there hasn't been, to anyone's knowledge, unless there is a wider conspiracy, which we don't know, a ritual of bonding to actually bring that demon back from the warp. The demon was banished and was actually quite happily back in the warp, just waiting for its next cycle. And then it woke up in this uh, in this puny little acolyte. And I've purposely created the model so that it is really a very tiny, slim, useless, like shadow of a person. It's not it it, it it's not an impressive um, person at all. So the demon's a bit miffed because it's like, well, <laughs> I. This is not someone who I'd pick, thank you. And Inquisitor Vey is like, I don't even want you here, but they're now kind of duty-bound to each other because that demon doesn't want to be there and can't escape. But Vey could also get in a lot of trouble, as Adam said, because he, he, he could be accused of having something that he's not in, entitled to or having. Do all the other Inquisitors not just notice? Not yet. So we the first right. game is going to be so we're running this as an event later in the year, um, and I think we have a table booked at Rule Zero now, assuming that everything goes as planned. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, so it will be interesting for my super puritan inquisitor to be like, oh cool, you're Otto Malleus as well. Wait, is that a demon host? Yeah. So I think what we what I'll do is I'll put um, I, when we posted the episode up, we'll 
tweet some photographs of the miniatures so yeah. listeners can, can see what I'm talking about. But um, Brendak is actually modelled on a hovering platform, which is actually going to be a stasis field. So what what Vey's done is lock him in a stasis field. So as they're carrying him around, he's just going to pretend he's a like a test subject and, and is, just try and explain it away. Is that a cute thing. reference to a Zinch disc? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Vis visually, it, it has all the cues of being chaotic, yeah. but none of the components are specifically chaotic. So I think that's, a that's for me at yeah. least, that kind of like, Oh yeah, it's being carried around by this floating device. It's like quite a nice um, inquisitor setting, sort of um, uh, kind of nod of the head towards what might be going on behind closed doors, which is nice to see, like storytelling through through miniature creation. Um, yeah, what's the third yeah. member of your warband? So it's funny, Donal, because the question you asked about do the other inquisitors know this? I was really aware of that. So this third character is actually my favourite, dare I say, because I needed a way of... I, I think they would have ended up with this entity and gone, sorry, we're PG-13, aren't we? Gone, oh, we've we? <laughs> yeah. gone, fuck! I don't know what... I, I, I don't want this thing. Um, and then started going through his kind of... Uh, contacts this if you like you know from all those inquisitor networking drinks he's been to yeah, um yeah. and uh and then i came up with this character who who is there to facilitate exactly what you just said and kind of try and carry pass off this um uh otherwise problematic presence so majos genitor relentia vidco now treads a dangerous path, but one she believes is the genitor's obligation to tread in the pursuit of objective truth. Her career started in the genitor chambers, committed to the ongoing analysis of the gene seed of the Adeptus Astartes to maintain its purity against the taint of chaos, the same taint blamed for the fall of the legions onto Horus. With sharp intellect and focus, her aptitude led to much acclaim and, and, and the command of her own research sect. The death of one of her acolytes on the planet of Necromunda conveys hypothesis that the acolyte's possession was the calamitous result of the cultivation slash isolation of demonic genetic material, led her to become an intellectual companion of Inquisitor Vey. Vidco champions the weaponization of the genetic and is often viewed as an organicist amongst her peers in the priesthood. Vey's borderline heretical pursuit is frequently and willingly facilitated by Vico's institu institutional privilege. Her access and clearance is often acting as cover for the radical intergelentia. However, Vidco is very comfortable in the knowledge that if Vey's hypothesis was to ever become unsubstantiated, that she would walk away, her keen dedication to knowledge undeterred by any attachment to the living, a cold irony that never ceases to amuse her. She's going to be quite an interesting character within uh, a Forge World setting. So the idea of this character was one we knew we were going to be in a Forge World setting, and I thought it would be cool to have someone from the priesthood. Mm -hmm. There's someone from the priesthood who isn't necessarily aligned to the objectives of the, the priesthood that will be on the Forge World we're on. So the point of Relentia Vidcon is she is a major biologist. And she um, is using her intellectual and her institutional privilege 
of A, for example, being able to carry around test subjects and stasis fields mm. um, because she can claim, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm bringing this thing along with me because I'm testing a new poison resistance coding that I've injected into it. So I'm just going to whip the chamber off and drop some gas and see what happens, that kind of stuff, right? And in face, just they're like, I have nothing to do with these people. They're just friends of mine. Thank yeah. you. I'll be with them. And, um, but it's a very fragile analysis because they has managed to get her hooked by saying, look, we were experimenting with this genetic material. This man is now possessed. And I, this is my hypothesis. And I believe that if we can prove it, it will be of great value to, to, to the Imperium. So she's in it only to substantiate this experiment. So he's got two motivations here. One, he either needs to prove that he's right, or if he's wrong, he needs to convince her that he's still right for long enough that she doesn't get him in a lot of trouble. Because the moment she switches off and all of that privilege goes away, then the whole thing could come exposed and it could be his own undoing, was my theory anyway. Does that sound coherent? I hope that sounds coherent. Yeah, so, I think having a, a, a protection makes sense because of the way that the situation sprung upon him but having that it be pretty permeable itself is is going to give you a lot of opportunity to role play within the um within the course of the games because you know you're already saying well if this happens then all bets are off well things are going to happen um yeah you know, whether exactly. whether or not it's a clash between puritan and radical inquisitors or if they can find some kind of accord George has got some horrible things planned for these characters. So, um, you know, they always say that plans don't really survive first contact with the enemy. Um, I think any any plans that our various warbands have in terms of investigating what's supposed to be going on in this board world, if they make it through, like, the introductory scenario, I will be amazed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the issue. It's a bit like, so don't remember when we were playing D&D, because you spend so long on character creation, you, you, you don't want them to, to die because you, you've got a, a whole sort of saga mapped out in your head, right? Um, I mean, you did for, for was it Pants? Your yeah, Pants. Um, and I, but I think the sad reality with Inquisitor versus D&D is that D&D generally has a GM that, who's invested in your characters going on a bit of a journey. Inquisitor <laughs> has a GM that's invested in killing your characters or maiming them in as many horrible ways as possible, as quickly as possible, is my, is my sense. So, I don't know that it's fair to say that Inquisitor does that. And, no, sorry, uh, or, our Inquisitor and, campaign yeah. has... <laughs> I th you know, like when, when Matt ran Curse of Strahd for us, he was very much trying to make our characters have a horrible time, but was also within that. I think trying to keep us alive. George will not be trying to keep our characters alive. Um, if so, in the WhatsApp group this week, basically the context for this is that ten years ago, when we last played Inquisitor in fifty-four mil up at Warhammer World, and I say ten years ago, I mean like fourteen years ago, but who's counting? Um, I had to GM a game uh, that George was playing in. So the way that the tournament would work is you would play five games over the weekend and you'd have to GM two of them. And so that's how it got around it being a role-playing game. Um, and I can't remember what George had done, but we were at uni together and he'd really pissed me off um, on the drive up from like Exeter to Nottingham, which at the time was like an eight-hour journey because the M5 didn't work. 
And we had like this big 54 mil forge world in the back of his Land Rover and his Land Rover didn't have good enough brakes, let's be honest. And it was a discovery from like 1992. So it was a, it was a bit of a nightmare all around. So we, we drove up and anyway, there was a lot of argument about like this thing that we'd put hundreds of hours into building and, and painting. And um, we played a few practice scenarios and our characters had, had like an established history. And I just decided that as a GM, and actually George won't remember this and won't tell the story this way, that any players on my table that rolled more ones than sixes on the risky action roll. So Donald, when you do your activation roll, you you like, so if I'm speed four, I roll four dice and any four up, I get to do something uh, like a six seconds worth of action. Um, if you have more sixes than ones, that's great. If you have more ones than sixes, that's fine. Unless you're doing something risky, like running along, reloading your gun. If you roll more ones, then you might trip over or you might drop your ammunition. So I just decided that any time anyone rolled a one on my table, their character would literally fall down. And George had the misfortune out of the 15 of us at the event that he was on my table for both of the scenarios that I was GMing. And he'd taken multiple quite weak characters. So when we said before that you take three characters within the game, that's kind of a, a ready reckoner. You, you know, you might have five kind of random like vagrants who can't really achieve anything in the game and you would certainly only ever have one person in power armor um so george just rolled a lot of ones and particularly for you know like lord inquisitor salarath who was on a gantry kept rolling ones while standing like 30 feet up in the air without like a handrail so, <laughs> like you know plummeted to the death so that's a very long way of saying that i'm under no illusion that when the shoe is on the other foot and George is our GM for the whole weekend, that we are going to be treated as harshly and violently as possible at every given opportunity. Um, because time is a healer of many things, but watching you I think... play it. <laughs> I can't play, wait to see George. Yeah. <laughs> 14 years later, just be like, this is satisfying. And the rage he's built up since then, just in general, through being a secondary school teacher, has only kind of made that more terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit, because I said we're going to post a picture of, um, of Vidco's model. She, uh, she was actually quite a joy to build. So I, 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 I actually use the legs of a Dalak Ganger the torso of a Gronstock Thunderer and a the head of a sister of battle. And then I wanted, I had an idea in my head that, do you remember the original nine, uh, 90s sculpts of Inquisitive Covenant? Yeah. With the shoulder-mounted side cannon. 2001, is, but okay. Yeah, fine. So uh, what was what was the name of that tech course? The, is it MIU? No. It was, yeah. Mind, mind Impulse Unit Psycannon. That's the one. I wanted it to have a Mind Impulse Unit Chem Thrower. Because I thought if she's from the Majors Biologist, she would, because there's some great rules in Inquisitive for, is it um, blood fire viruses and other bits and pieces? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I took an Escher um, Chem Thrower and created a shoulder-mounted version of it and uh, sculpted it onto uh, the model, and she's got a full-on respirator. So in terms of character, she is just completely like anti-gas, anti-toxin, 
uh, all that stuff. Uh, not necessarily as well armored as you'd norm as expect a normal Mechanicum priest to be, because they're a bit more, you know, uh, yeah. all bionics and heavy armor. But she, uh, in game, I'm hoping that she's going to do um, some more unique attacks because I had to kind of invent a weapon, which is really cool because that weapon doesn't actually exist in the game. Uh, so George kind of helped help me with that. So it, it's, it was just cool to get some homebrew content in there as well. So, yeah. I think that's essential for Inquisitor. That, you know, you, you got you to gotta make some stuff up and see if it fits. Like, there are no points. Um, it was just an interesting uh, point, what you just said about um, the typical idea of Adeptus Mechanicus having armour. Um, that, of course, doesn't quite translate into Inquisitor as it would in 40k. So your Skitari might have a good armour save in 40k because, you know, they're metal dudes. Um, well, actually, in Inquisitor, it's, it's your bionic limb. So it has an armour value, but you might not also have a toughness value. So you, you would reduce the damage taken by a percentage of your toughness. But actually, if you have a metal limb, although your toughness might be generally higher, um, you don't have the kind of stacking, it's a bit like in Age of Sigmar with the reduction of the second uh, mortal wound save. Um, you might have on paper slightly better survivability, but it doesn't translate in the same way as just being more survivable or tougher. And as you say, like having a respirator, great, but actually um, your breathing in other situations might be, might be hampered by other things. So there's a real, um, the things that you think are going to work don't work. And that's quite yeah. fun. Uh, I think, and, and like any, you know, like any other character, if she gets shot in the head, yeah, and someone crits that, then you've you've been shot in the head. It's not that, yeah, it, it's because it, it's just very specific. I quite like the idea as well of her being a bit like having points of weakness that somebody might try and target. You know, if, if she's firing that chem throw around and then somebody manages to pull that respirator off, is that going to be problematic for her potentially? It's it's cool stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's my that's my warband um, over a year in creation because sadly the the, the real life pandemic. Which um, oh yeah, um, you may notice something about Vidco's surname if you spell it backwards. Great. Ah <laughs> uh, well, she's getting her fucking mask pulled right off. <laughs> And she's wearing a face mask. I couldn't yeah. resist. I'm sorry. Uh, it's the it's the level of detail that you have to enjoy, right? Um, speaking of levels of detail, we're going to have a conversation after the break about painting in the open section. Welcome back to Open. Today we're going to be talking about hobby and in particular painting. Um, and on the subject of painting, um, Exit 23 Games have been back in contact with me. And if you're listening to this episode, you can get 10% off their paints. Um, it's very simple. They have a website. You can go to the website and um, at some point in the order process, I can't tell if it's the start or at checkout, you will enter a code. And until August this year, if you type in ANGEL2021, you'll get 10% off um, your orders from Exit 23 Games. Um, so there you go. That was really nice um, to hear. Um, I was talking about the Turbo Dork paints that they uh, supplied last time, but they've also got alternative Blood Bowl models and stuff like that too. So they're super cool. Check them out on Instagram and Twitter as well. And don't forget, you can get 10% off uh, with the code ANGEL2021. Um, so on the subject of painting, 
One of my very favourite experiences of being an Angel Wargamer is having gone into the uh, Angel Games Workshop run by Golden Demon winning painter Matt Flynn back in uh, 2012 for the first time and me being like, yeah, I, I paint more than I play and meeting lots and lots of the guys that I still hang out with and socialise with like nearly a decade later. Um, Donal was one of the people who most frequently used to pay me to paint his models for him. Um, and it's been really cool. And this is hopefully not coming across as patronising. It's been really cool, particularly in recent discussions, how your kind of um, situation within the hobby has shifted. And I think it's fair to say that painting and hobbying is now one of your primary focuses, perhaps even beyond gaming. I, I certainly spend a lot more time painting and I've had like two games in, in a year. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think I've just reached that hobby cycle because I think hobby is a cycle and, and certainly painting and hobbying in general is, I, I find much more enjoyment out of it than I previously did. What, what was the barrier for you before? Was it just, it just the, um, the amount of time I, required, the input as it were? I don't even think it's time required because I think I, I probably spent more time thinking about gaming. I think it's just a lack of interest in the competitive side of gaming. Um, I, I'm not playing at the minute, so I don't spend, there's no point mm -hmm. me spending time worrying about rules or thinking about it. Uh, and instead I prefer... Um, doing hobby and thinking about where I'm going to go directionally in terms of what I'm doing um, stacked on with I've actually just enjoyed doing different things um, mm -hmm. rather than just being stuck in the same sort of models and I've got i no longer constrained by having an event so actually I can just pick up a new model and, and focus on that for a month and then do something else I think that's the change yeah I think it's I think that's um that marries up to kind of how I've been feeling, but kind of in reverse, because I'd got to a point where I had to have an event to get any painting done. Um, and so I've slowly been doing, actually learning from what you've been talking about um, over the last year of going, oh, well, I could just paint this thing because I want to. Oh, that's been quite nice. And then it leads you on to painting something else. So I had a bit of a slump, um, and I talked about this before, but I had a hobby slump. Uh, most of last year and then it was only kind of going I'm going to paint a Necromunda model oh, I'm going to paint another one now oh, I've painted every day for two weeks and I've now finished my Necromunda models that's cool I'll paint this Blood Bowl team that might have been the other way around but yeah that kind of not having the pressure has actually been quite nice um, I think yeah so I've been working I think I've been working on my ogres now for 18 months and I'm still nowhere near finished um, but I've definitely got burned out by just that, <laughs> like <laughs> the skin over and over. Um, each one takes me probably like three to four weeks. Um, and I don't batch paint. I tried batch painting them once and I gave up. So I, um, <laughs> I paint them all individually. Um, but in the meantime, just splitting it up, doing the Necromunda stuff and Ash Wastes, um, trying out some different styles, also following people on YouTube. So like, I, I think I'm displacing all that competitive um, research and I'm actually just replacing it with learning about painting, um, trying new techniques and, and like generally reading. So painting is the new meta. <laughs> I think so. I, I was I, I was kind of nervous when COVID started because I'd already started on my ogres. I'm like, oh, everybody's going to have spent like four months at the time when we thought lockdown was going to be four months. Um, 
and have really beautiful armies and then it just seems like nobody's really actually um done that so so hopefully i'll finish the orders at some point yeah, I, th- I think with the realization setting, this is all going to go on a little bit too long. I mean, I, I so I ended up, if anything, getting rid of stuff because I started to feel a real pressure for the amount of stuff that I had that um, I probably just didn't take the time to acknowledge before. So I was working and I was busy, and it was always going to be a project for another time. And then, when actually, when there was time to do it, it suddenly felt like a silly amount of pressure. So I ended up clipping down the amount of volume that I had to really focus in on the bits I wanted to do. And I, I, I feel like my hobbies definitely benefited from it just by sort of taking that approach. Um, again, my main outlet being Necromander and uh, the Ash Waste for, for that recently. So but you mentioned trying different techniques. And I think um, as, the, as the person who's organising the Ash Waste campaign, and I was really happy when you got in touch and said, oh, mate, can I join in? Because that sounds like something that might be a fun project for me. Because that's the entire point of this is just to get people to like kit bash some models together. If they want or if not, then don't. Uh, and, and try something new because it's all going to be a bit made up and a bit a bit wacky. And you've actually gone um, to, to the lengths of trying a completely new technique on your um on your chosen gang as well. So I just thought if you could maybe, for the benefit of the listeners, say what that gang is and what the concept is and then the, the, the actual painting technique that you've used on them. Yeah, so for Ash Wastes, I'm using a Corpse, gang, corpse Grinder gang as, as sort of the basis um, and then picked up two penitent engines. Um, so as walkers for the, the Ash Wastes, which I haven't figured out a, a narrative around at at some point, but really it just came down to, I really like the corpse grinder aesthetic. I don't do chaos that often. So it was fun to do something a bit more chaotic and, and human. Um, I'd done a lot of flesh, but I wanted to do something different. Um, and the penitent and engines, I just really like the models. Um, they're, they're quite cool. Um, so I've already painted them up and it really came down to, I wanted to try some techniques that would allow me to, to produce faster armies. Um, so the ogres are something that's very slow, but I'm never going to repeat this in an army or find it unlikely I'll have the motivation for it. But what I wanted to try to do is find some techniques that actually would just help me speed up the process um, while not necessarily losing an overall aesthetic. So I did um, a lot of work with oil washes. Um, so it was the first, technically second time, but, but really first time doing oil washes on multiple models um so primarily using black brown some red some greens um just to because uh, the, the effect that oil paints grant you um versus say acrylic washes which is what we're used to um there's a lot more fluidity you can work on them over a course of a couple of days the drying time's a lot um slower so you've got a lot more flexibility you don't have the pulling issues that you have within um, normal acrylic washes um, so it was just a really different um, different technique and then after I did the, the oil wash side I did some a lot of pigment work where I then built up a lot more color using for me ash waste is kind of quite Mad Maxi, and you obviously like, there's a lot of synergies there but if you think about the Mad Max imagery it's always about like just sand and like dust clouds from the sand or like when you're driving along things are being lifted up and I kind of just 
took that and, and ran with it. So created like some sort of Blanchetsu-ish style um, of, of a gang. Um, so using a lot of pigments afterwards to kind of um, build some environmental um, effects on the trousers, legs, even bodies and weapons. Um, and what it means is from a lazy painter point, point of view, because just because I'm enjoying painting doesn't mean I actually want to, to, to spend loads of time um, highlighting or layering. You can actually just block out a lot of your colors, do some simple highlights, and then you save yourself so much time by doing the oil wash and um, and the pigments. And it looks fantastic. Again, I think for, for everybody's benefit, we'll post up some pictures when we release the episode, if that's all right. Um, yeah of course but, but the, the 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 reason why the reason i love the choice and the penitent engines is that a no one else has done any walkers yet i'm not saying that um, i think well adam you had a certain conversion in mind but no one else has done walkers and the point of it being a vehicle combat rule set for this as benefit we did a, an episode two, two episodes ago i believe episode two we spoke about how i've taken the the rick priestley gorka walker vehicle combat system um I love the idea of normal people who've been lured to corn unknowingly have become crazed cannibals who are now building walkers that sprint to keep up with petrol-powered vehicles just so that they can cannibalise more, just so that it's, and, it, and it's hunting. And what you've done is... Um, uh, the reason that, that I think the technique works so much is it's got that real predatory feel that you get from Mad Max. That that it's that you know that it's a, that it's Darwinian. Everything's out there and on the hunt, and uh, you've just managed to capture it so well in the way that you've uh, presented those models. So so kudos! I'm really excited to see them on the table. And for me, that that kind of ethos behind the kind of um, what the story might be behind the, the models is really sold in particular for me by the weathering and by the washing. So something I do a lot if I'm working on commission stuff, a cavalry in particular is I'll um, kind of do a, a, a dry brush of like steel legion drab or something. Um, in this case, you're using pigments and, and, and dusting and that sort of thing. But the, the emphasis of the flow of any fabric that exists, and obviously the corpse grinders have had some fabric lower on, on the bodies, really does suggest that movement in a way that a model that's cleanly, cleanly and nicely painted. Um, I steer away from weathering a lot and I'm, I'm using less and less kind of blood for the blood guard and technical effects in general when I'm painting, uh, which is interesting because it's something I used to really heavily lean into. Um, either of you remember my kind of eighth edition uh warriors of chaos but that weathering gives exactly that motion um and then when you've got the cleaner metals and the the deep um uh the deeper colors from the washing that that contrast of the machine coming away from something not organic but natural dust cloud and as you say kicking stuff up you kind of get that three dimension it's, it's like drawing a cartoon and drawing like three lines around something that's moving to suggest that it's it's that kind of effect which i, I like um yeah um I, what i've liked about the the painting you're talking about there and, and about the ogres as well is the stylistic kind of difference of those things um i know that the the ogres are came into being through uh, kind of working with benjamin um and looking at um flesh and, and cloth and actually 
through seeing your stuff, it's massively influenced the way I've thought about flesh and cloth in the last year, not only because I'm doing ogres, sure. but um, yeah, so but like getting, you know, which is stuff I used to do with my Eldar a long, long time ago, kind of purple washes around the eyes, reds, uh, bringing different skin coloring in under the surface, which I know you've been working out with the ogres, which is cool, and then kind of layering over that so you have a kind of transparency. Um, so that's kind of interesting in the one direction, but it's very divorced from that. And yeah, it's not the only technique you've been trying out. And we were talking the other day about the um, the squig that you've been um, painting. And I was really interested, particularly in the kind of the first process, so to speak. But if, if you could talk us through that, that would, I think that'd be really cool for people. Yeah, so the, the I, I did a loom boss on squig. A, I've had the model for ages and B, um, I'm really, now that I've moved on to the painting, I'm really unhappy with how my gets look. So I kind of want a, a scheme that would also work, but I don't necessarily want to weather everything. Um, although that would not work with gets probably. Um, so with can the loom boss, I'm going just say, we also need to find you a basic technique for your gets that isn't going to give you lung cancer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, um, I don't know if pigments is much better to be fair, um, but I, I have a mask now, so that that's helpful. Um, so, so what I did with the, the loon boss on, on cave squeak is I, I um, followed more of like a Griselle style, like, um, which is like a, eight, like a 16th century or 18th um, century Italian um, painter, but, but effectively, um, for our standpoint, kind of doing a zenithal, but more than zenithal, like really creating value just using black and white paints. So um, using from deep black through to bright white and all the gray tones in between. Um, but, but imagine just painting the, the loon boss just with those two colors. So really focusing on where the light's coming from, what the light source is. Um, so for me, what I wanted to create was um, environmental lighting entirely from um the any yellows so on the loom boss you've got um a, the, his weapon so I, I painted that yellow um a couple of bit moon tokens and then there's a, a little moon spider underneath um so i wanted to create env environmental lightings from those positions and then everything else kind of played on that so the idea being he's dark in a cave um so the base is super dark um and then all the light sources is come are coming from from whatever he's holding. Um, and it was really fun working with something just black and white. Um, I probably spent more time on on what effectively is like a primary, like primary, like you can maybe do it with Zenithal, but but this is a lot more intense. Um, but you, you can do it with Zenithal and it works to a certain extent, but you don't learn anything by doing a Zenithal. No. Like it's it's a way of creating and pre-shading and there are certain miniature ranges I can think of where it is massively effective and there are others where I'm like, just prime it grey. Like, it's a lot of time with certain things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but with the, the, with the definition of the light values and I guess by, you know, the contrast, literally the contrast within the miniature, uh, light and dark, interplay of shadow, negative space, empty space, um that is massively useful so like it's for me it's like doing mark making exercises before 
painting on a canvas, right? So I want, if I'm going to be painting a series of rocks and I'm going to, there's a tree on it, I'm not going to use the same brush and I'm not going to use the same um, consistency of paint. And I might even put um, physically just slap on the paint for the rocks to create something that's slab-like and it might be marbled within that and I might not work on that and I might just let the paint generate some, some of the texture. Whereas with the tree, I might be going in for something lighter and we might build it up in more like a Warhammer model sense where you have dark colors underneath and then lighter leaves and, and whatever, and you're using a more feathering brush. The light values with a miniature are really interesting because the surface is to a certain extent predefined. So then to interpret that is way more fascinating, I think, than um, using a spray can to do wraith bone at 45 degrees to the chaos black undercoat yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I, well i mean um, zenithal zenithal was born more of um i feel like it was your kind of early days airbrushes and their marine armies where most of this came from um because it was a really easy way of of hitting power armor and creating the effects of light flowing over a rounded um smooth armored surface I feel, I think what then happened is everybody's just thought, oh, well, it does work quite well on flesh, is my note. Um, I did Zenithal for my Fire Slayers using an airbrush, um, and it was uh, Deathclaw Brown, and then Kislev Zenithal, and then used washes to tie the two in, uh, yeah. and that was over a grey undercoat. So actually the Deathclaw Brown faded into the grey, so actually, as, as all the fire slaves have got there, because they're all monoposed, let's be honest, they're all kind of doing rugby scrum stances, right? So their arms are normally out and chests, top of the pecs are out, but then everything else is gradually covered. Um, it, it, it created a really natural blend fairly effort, effortlessly. But I tried using Xenothel on Sylvaneth and it was a total waste of time. It just didn't work. Right. It just didn't work because it, 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 where the the kind of peaks of troughs of the light and the negative space were coming out it, yeah. it just didn't make sense and so i ended up painting so heavily over the zenith or i might as well not bothered anyway yeah. sorry i digress no 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 not at all no it's just i think it's important to say that i wasn't saying that zenith doesn't have its place i think it's a, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a massively useful tool particularly when you're painting on um not a large scale but a broad scale so if you're going to if you're going to get your airbrush out and you're going to prime your marine army today it's a really good way of going about that. If you're going to prime your yeah, terrain, I want that you can clean kids. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you're going to prime your terrain today, Xenithal is very much your friend. Um, on the Lord of the Rings commission I'm working on at the moment. Sorry, side note: don't bother painting your terrain because there's a flying fox that turns it off. So waste <laughs> of time. True story. Uh, at least you have to roll a dice for once. Um, the um so yeah so lord of the rings commission i'm working on um for most of the orcs i'm doing xenithal um and i'm uh i'm doing that with chaos black and then xandry dust because i think that the corax white is a bit too neutral a color for the orcs there's lots of browns and reds and um purples and things in in the way i'm painting them at least um and the cloth's red so having something that's not going towards white and gray is really handy but spray paint priming is something you can really think about. And it's the same with an airbrush, right? So for the wargs, I'm just spraying the back half of it Xandri dust and the front half chaos black. Yeah. Two two-tone primer, job yeah. done. 
Um, just like the dopamine. Yeah, and it's it's more for me about the, the planning out, right? So I'm doing a load of um, ring rate style models. They're called Morgul Knights. I didn't know they existed, but they're basically ring yeah, rate. Yeah, they're only in the book. Cavalry. Yeah. They're only in the book. Yeah, they didn't make it into the films. And um, it's a shame because they're an awesome idea. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Yeah. And they're just, they're just Chaos Black Primer in a way that, you know, I haven't primed anything Chaos Black in a long time and have probably said on various podcasts, you should never prime anything Chaos Black. I'm pretty sure that I've said that, so I'm coming out ahead of people calling. Is that, that is that against the the color Chaos Black or just against Black? The color Chaos Black by Games Workshop is a terrible color. Yeah, it's unhelpful it's as a priming device. Yeah. However, it's actually not. Um, if you're doing something with black robes or armor, um, like so, for example, the Turbo Dork metals work really, really well over black. Um, I like black. I don't like Chaos Black. I don't think it's no. actually black. So it probably, I think it probably there's, there's, there's really interesting blacks out there. Um, so I'm I prime now using Montana uh, airbrush black, and it, it's um, oh sorry, I use um, Molotov um, black, which is like a an ink <laughs> refill uh, black, and it's it's a much more satin finish, which means when you're actually painting a model, it's much easier to see than yeah. Chaos black, which is like more of a dark gray like, yeah i mean that that inability to see what's going on in the model is one of the reasons that i've used xenophil in the past right so you, you prime the model yeah. black and then if you've got shit light where you're painting which i have historically although not anymore thankfully um you kind of look at the model that you sprayed black and you're like well i've made that a lot more difficult for myself um, okay. and that was probably one of the reasons that i moved towards um using white or light gray as a primer for a long time because you can actually see the detail and I, I love using washes and um, working backwards. So actually, and I know Alex, you've primed a lot with kind of a mid-tone gray so that you can go quite quickly lighter or darker. And there's, there's good arguments in, in all directions. I think um, it, for me, increasingly, it's about planning the project that you're doing. Whereas perhaps in the past, I'd have gone through a phase of undercoating everything in Chaos Black or everything in Corax White. And actually yeah. the, the the, the setting up of something. And I think that to, to, you know, long story short and coming back around again, the thing that had really fascinated me about the light exercise that you were doing with the cave squig was that it was putting that work in at that stage. And I was just fascinated in that because it was exactly how I would have worked traditionally with canvas or on paper um, and hadn't ever really thought of applying it to miniature painting. Yeah, it was a, for me, it was a, I had a massive learning exercise of, of thinking about light. I think the next stage for me is then thinking about temperature um, instead of just value. So, so really, I was just focused on value from black to white and everything in between. And then the next stage is thinking about, okay, if I have a warm yellow light, like I should be shading, like my shadow needs to have cold tones, right? Like, so mm. like blues, et cetera, and start thinking about, um temperature across the board but this was very much like the first of several exercises that i'm probably going to plan out um for different models thinking about how they all interact with each other that's awesome yeah um, um i think that that's the side of things that is kind of like that step the planning step beyond where i ever get with painting and it's something that i've dabbled with so i've done quite a lot of um object source lighting in the past and i've done a lot of work on shadows and um, it's something that I had been kind of tentatively looking at with my flesh eater courts. So having 
a, con a concept of a moon somewhere and then everything else is in shadow. So I was having very monochrome bases um, with the blues and purples in the shadows and then bringing kind of yellow and orange into just one side and kind of one uh, kind of one angle of, of, a, of a miniature. Um, sadly, it never got beyond one test model, but that was kind of the theory. So it, I, I think that segues nicely into a question I had for both of you. So all three of us on this podcast today have secured our copies of Warhammer Quest Cursed City, which are, which are due to arrive with us. Uh, When's the episode going out, Adam? I think we'll probably have them by the time the episode goes out, maybe? Uh, or is no, it the day out, before? It's out Saturday and the podcast will be out Friday. So we'll Right, okay. So by the time you're listening to this, if you're uh, quick off the mark, we're imminently receiving our copies. Um, and I think quite a few people have been talking about doing the whole hammer horror monochrome style paint job. Yeah. And I wonder, Donald, how did your the result of your study that you did, because I know you're planning on doing the black, white, and red, right? What's, yeah. your, what's your thoughts on achieving that? So, so for, the, for the listeners' benefit, that's the black, white, and red, which has featured on the box art, I believe, from the images that we've seen and the preview videos, yes. et cetera. So I haven't, uh, I want to look more into the artwork and seeing what's in the books and stuff, because I, I suspect that will um, help influence. So I don't, I'm not going to speak too much, but um, conceptually, uh, if a lot of Curse City happens like at night or like parts of it happen at night. So I'm going to kind of assume you've got this sort of like white, ish moon and that's like uh providing the light source um and then work from there so i it will in theory be like a very i want to paint this relatively quickly so i'm gonna mm -hmm. zenithal do some additional highlighting and details and then is that airbrush zenithal sorry is that rattle can uh, probably airbrush because i i struggle with control with a, a primer yeah with I, cold yeah, i do it outside and seventh floor balcony on a canal that just has wind like i i've given up on trying um <laughs> i'm trying to use use the the, the rattle can so yeah I'll, I'll probably i'll use my airbrush um to kind of influence that and then um use a mixture of black white red and then pigments as well probably to to kind of tie things together how do you plan on applying the red because I guess what I'm interested in is um, the the red that I've so what I've noticed on the on the box because it's very similar to um, the Miller comic books like Sin City right where yeah. color is applied but not necessarily it's not necessarily from a light source it is just Adam help me out with my language so the, or the, yeah. the, the style used in Frank Miller's comic books is called colour seclusion where right. typically you'll have black and white but if there's something particularly important or narratively interesting it will be highlighted um, and yeah. so through Sin City Frank Miller would generally use red um, there's a character called Yellow Bastard who um, so yeah. he was only to have yellow and, and so on oh he was horrible um, <laughs> Which isn't, which isn't quite what they're doing in the imagery we've seen for Cursed City. Cursed City is more of a replacement of... Um, so if you were to think of like, a, um, like an old Warren poster cartoon or like something from the Wild West, it would be black and white and you'd use white ink and black ink over kind of sepia paper. 
Um, so that'd be kind of brown. I think what Games Workshop have done quite cleverly in that artwork is just replace that brown kind of mid-tone within a sepia artwork with red, obviously, being a vampiric setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got that kind of, yeah, it, it is colour seclusion in that they're only using uh, red, but it's not seclusion in the sense of, like, I've identified this one element within my imagery which I'm going to have coloured in the absence of colour elsewhere. It's a kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's literally a washing of the um, the shadowy uh, parts with something that is evocative of this idea of there being some blood curse within Ulfen Khan. Um, so I think yeah. my so after- question would be that I would, I think if I were to approach it that way, um, I'd be interested to see if you disagreed or would do it differently, Donal, I would probably prime them white and do um and then wash them with wash the whole model with um black and then i think i'd be working the red back in probably just down one side and 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 do it in that sense if i wanted to replicate the art um yeah i mean i think going from the white to black will be a lot easier to work with um and then because then you can overlay with red it's gonna go a lot smoother um, I think actually you might use contrast for this. Yeah. As well. Um, I think quite like a nice bloody... um, red, isn't there? It's a, the blood is it actually... red. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've actually used it in a couple of Warcry models over metallic, and it it, it looks great. Um, yeah. So I might try that. I need to. I think I'm going to have to do a few test models, which I'll probably do on the zombies, or. Um, Bad Moon Cafe kindly sent me some test models for Stormcast because uh, I made a Stormcast um, scheme similar to my Corpse Grinders. Um, but I probably, I might be able to do one or two um, tests for Curse City with those as well. Cool. I'm really torn about how I'm going to do my set. Um, I had been, so in the building I'd done for my Flesh Eater Courts, I'd been sculpting cobblestone bases um to kind of fit in with the garden of more scenery or whatever that's called these days um you know the 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 death scenery yeah the mausoleum thank you yeah Yeah. um and obviously the endless spells for the flesh eater courts and the um the charnel throne thing um with the kind of bretonian flagstones and, and and images and things so I'd been sculpting flagstone bases anyway, and I'm now wondering whether I'm going to be doing that for my heroes. Because I had a look at the war scrolls um, on the website, and um, you can't put them into cities, I think. I might have been misreading that. You can. They're in cities, but they don't take the keyword of the city they join. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because they're... Yeah, because they're... So I had thought, well, I've got a cities army. I should base the cities models with the same basing. And I'm now thinking, maybe I won't do that. Um, we'll see how they attach to the bases. So I don't know if it's going to be slaughter or anything. Uh, but I think maybe doing flagstones for the heroes and for the bigger um, the bigger monsters might be quite cool. Um, and I thought I might approach painting it, the bases at least, in the way that I'd approach the flesh eater courts ones. But beyond that. I, I don't know. I, I hadn't had the thought that you've had, which is to do it at night and to do it conceptually for the kind of evil dead stuff. 
and I'm now completely in love with it. So I think I'm going to have to really take a, a, a step back before I approach my own set. Luckily, I'm doing one on commission, so I can do that first. <laughs> yeah, I, I, honestly, I think um, I, I think that's going to be quite a popular scheme because there's an element of me I want like a fast scheme that's going to have like a nice effect, and I think yeah. this will work relatively smoothly. And there's um, 60 models right in the box, and you're going to want to play lot. play the game like this century. So. I mean, did you see, yeah. I don't know if anyone saw the intro uh, videos from um, Gorilla Miniature Games, uh, where he's playtested his preview copy, but the amount of models you need even just to do the, the first scenario off the bat uh, seems to be... I think... I, I think um, you're fairly all in on this scene, on this on this. Uh, it, it, is, it, wrong, of course. it is and it isn't. So, so if it's anything like Blackstone Fortress, you'll basically have encounter cards or whatever they call it, yeah. um, and that will be like a random set of like three or four different types of enemies um and so you can either choose that you pick whatever's shown or um for the initial games you can just limit what you actually will pull so if you want to have variety and only go like i'm only going to have zombies you can take out the other stuff or you can mix it up and if you pull a zombie twice you just like go to the next one yeah uh, certainly that's how i approached silver tower the couple of times i played that it was like Oh, it's said to generate this, but all of that is already on the table, so we won't do, we won't do that. Um, yeah. Um. Oh, so I, I I sorry, finish that point. I had I we uh, for those listening, we stick our hands up when we want to ask a question. I was sticking my hand up pre uh, to ask the question after Donal finished speaking, but he very politely stopped. So carry on, Donal. Finish what you're saying. I, 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 my question. I don't think I had anything else to say. I think I was just agreeing with Adam. Um, oh, okay. Um, I, I wanted to ask you guys a question as a bit of a possibly closing statement on this piece. I don't know what we have it in for time. Um, I have always had the ambition with, because uh, I was talking in Quizza how I like to put pop culture references into the stuff that I do. And with given that Curse City, the sculpts are beautiful, I'm not going to do anything with them uh, conversion wise. The models I will build as they come. Um, I want to do it with the paint job. One of my favourite albums, music albums of all time, and you may want to Google this while we have this conversation, is The Art of Drowning by AFI. Uh, and the art on that is done in a very specific way using blacks, purples, pinks, and greens. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I wondered if either of you speculatively had any ideas on how I could replicate that. Um, so you're looking towards, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy, don't know, you might, but also we can just look it up later. Um, the cartoon kind of cell shading approach and black lining, um, yeah. would be quite a good way to go. Um, you're looking flatter colors. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it'd definitely work. It's kind of almost Tim Burton-esque. It um, is. And it's kind it's of, it's very, yeah, that, that side of kind of creepiness. I, I, I think that in terms of, I mean, you want to do a Dulux color match, really, because I think the purple's nice, but it's uh, it's more desaturated than a lot of the GW purples. You're actually leaning more towards the deeper end of their pinks rather than the deep purple to make another... Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a bit horror horror pink, isn't it? The, the yeah. purples that they're using. Um, yeah. And I think just paying attention to where you are, kind of more on the pastel end of the... Although it's quite poppy... Um, particularly for that 
album cover as opposed to um, the Hallow All Hallows EP, um, which is a bit brighter. I think I think yeah, it's mostly desaturated pop colours towards a, a pastel spectrum. So honestly, a good way of getting towards a lot of that would be with Zandri dust. Um, or bleach bone or something, whatever that's called today, do shabti bone, and then going towards a bit of dry brushing. Um, um, I I actually, are you interested in doing this cartoony style though? Like in terms of yeah, definitely. Because um, I, yeah. I think for, for that, there's a few different. Um, I've looked at some YouTube videos for it. There's a few different like instruction videos on how to do them, um, but you end up having so much of it as black. A black lining i don't know how it would work on the zombies but i think you could probably start off with the bats would be quite easy i think but the bats would be the easiest models to do with it because they're the the most basic yeah um but i would um i'll send you a few links afterwards or i'll try to google the ones that i've looked at but i think that cartoon comic style is it's fascinating i looked into doing it and i got kind of intimidated by it um about yeah, six months ago. I, yeah. Yeah, this is the only thing I'm worried about is if the amb- it, it's going to be that because I also want to play the game at some point, so it will have to balance out with how it's, much time it's. It's just it's it. a technique yeah. as well that looks horrible, man. For ninety percent of the paint job, and then it just comes together at the end when you put the final flourishes into it, right? Yeah, um, and yeah. I just don't have the conf- or I didn't have the confidence at the time to do that to myself, so I was like, "Did you black line with a pen?" You can. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can. You can also use oil washes as pin washing um, if you wanted um, because oils run really deep into recesses and are incredibly forgiving. Um, you can basically just touch it. But the, the, the thing that really makes the technique is like, you know, 30 to 40% of the model is just pure black. Um, and you create depth. It, I mean, Comics create depth by using black as shadow and sh- like shadow to make it look 3D, right? And then what you're trying to, if you're trying to go that comic style, you're trying to make a 3D model look 3D by creating blackness. And so I think it's a really awesome style. I just, I don't know how well it works with detailed models. Yeah. So I think it would, it would work really well on Stormcast or some of the simpler models, but it might not work as well with say the zombies for me I, I look at and I'm like they look amazing but there's so much detail um okay but I, but I might be wrong that... tonight you, you're I... very creative so I'm sure you can um try to try to I interpret th- it I think having a look at that and then kind of either my, my instinct would be to give it a go and um you can you can lean more or less heavily into something, right? So if you want to be inspired by the colors that are used there, you can major in having black, right? And then you can bring in those colors. Um, if you wanted to go whole hog into um, using the black lining and more kind of cartoon um, graphic novel style painting on the 3D model, then great. I would be definitely using one of those free liberators to do that. Um, the what, sorry? Like a free Stormcast would be oh, yeah, first yeah. point first point of call to do yeah, that yeah. port of call but um i think the colors are definitely something that would work well with the existing styling um so i think looking at that and using as much kind of contrast in the 
real sense of the word contrast as in light and dark um why not i think you know that's that's going to be really distinctive and i think you'll enjoy painting it that way as well because it's it, yeah it's, again it's got that reference within it um cool i've i've struggled to paint for the last couple of days because i've been doing like real world work stuff and i always have a, a lag time um afterwards so i'm i'm quite inspired to get back to my commission stuff tomorrow so thanks for that guys um if you have also been inspired by uh the painting chat uh today um just to remind you of that um 10 discount code at exit 23 games it is angel 2021 uh and i didn't say this before the a in angel is capitalized so it's capital angel 2021 okay um so there we go um donal it's been great having you on and chatting i'm sure we'll have you on again um in the not too distant future we've got loads to talk about as things start to open up and some of the projects we've been banging on about for ages move closer and closer to being on a tabletop which um would be really quite nice um for sure yeah absolutely thanks um, yeah um thanks as ever to jay channer for um supplying us with our musical interludes which i will again try to vaguely seamlessly edit in for clarity to everyone jay is not doing the editing so if it sounds crap it's because of me the music tracks are lovely um Thanks to um, uh, thanks to Rule Zero, who are going to be hosting us for Inquisitor. We do have a table booked, so assuming they're legally allowed to be open, that's where those D100s are going to be thrown and where George is going to kill all of our characters. Um, <laughs> also where we're going to do Ash Waste later in the summer. Um, so if you are in East London, there are some great places. Donald mentioned Badman Cafe as well. They're doing an amazing delivery service. Um, for hobby stuff in the London area at the moment. Um, a lot of stuff's been coming quite quickly. For some people, obviously, the post is pretty shit in general, but continue supporting local. Um, don't buy direct from GW if you vaguely know anybody who works for an indie. They will probably have had a really shit year. So big shout out to those guys for keeping going and for somehow managing to secure everyone who wanted one a box of uh, Cursed City. Um, so thanks again to Rule Zero for that. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on mine. Um, we'll see you next time. Have a great couple of weeks. Bye.